X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, March the 2nd. Today, back in the day, March 2nd, 1901, J.P. Morgan formed the world's first billion-dollar corporation, U.S. Steel. Corporation was a merger of the Carnegie Steel Company and the Federal Steel Company and the National Steel Company. Corporation was capitalized at $1.4 billion. That's $43 billion in today's money. U.S. Steel was the largest steel producer, the largest corporation in the world for a time. The growth of the company was largely dependent on the use of convict labor and cheap African-American labor in the South through the 1920s. They employed over 340,000 people during World War II. 36 years after the founding U.S. Steel, the Steel Workers Organizing Committee signed a collective bargaining agreement with the company. The SWOC, Steel Workers Organizing Committee, was formed by the Committee for Industrial Organizations, that's the CIO, you now know it as part of the AFL-CIO, June 7, 1936, and on March 2nd, today, back in the day, 1937, the SWOC achieved a major victory against the company's unions. Corporation had previously used company unions to contain employee organization. The agreement was reached between labor leader John L. Lewis and U.S. Steel Chairman Myron Taylor in private. Ended up being a surprise to many. And U.S. Steel, a fierce opponent of labor organization, recognized the SWAC as the sole bargaining unit for its employees. U.S. Steel, a fierce opponent of labor organization, recognized the SWAC as a sole bargaining agent for its workers. The agreement established a 40-hour work week, among other basic working conditions. The agreement set off a chain of organizing, among other industries as well. Today, back in the day, March 2, 1853, the Washington Territory officially split from the Oregon Territory. Settlers in the Cowlitz and Puget Sound region drafted a petition to the U.S. Congress calling for a separate territory north of the Columbia. And Congress Representative Richard Stanton proposed the name Washington Territory instead of Columbia Territory to avoid confusion with the District of Columbia. The bill to create the new territory was passed by the Senate on March 2, 1853, signed by President Millard Fillmore that very day, and Washington became the 42nd State of the Union on November 11, 1889. Today we'll have your weekly Portland City Council update, also an interview with Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots. Emily shares more about the paper's ongoing series on housing issues in Josephine County and Grants Pass. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan has joined the fight for a one-person, one-vote system. Fagan announced she is now an advisor for National Popular Vote, a nonprofit dedicated to making decisions more democratic. The group is pushing for a one-person, one-vote system. It doesn't get rid of the Electoral College. It does make sure the presidency would only go to the winner of the popular vote. The Electoral College supporters say America's current system protects the state's roles in presidential elections, but critics say the Electoral College gives disproportionate power to voters in just a few swing states. Oregon passed the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact in 2019. Back then, Fagan was one of the chief sponsors of that legislation. Across the country, 15 states and Washington, D.C. have adopted the compact. How the compact works... The states who sign it agree to apply their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote if states representing a majority of electoral college votes in the country have also signed on to the compact. Right now, signatories to the compact represent 196 electoral votes. The movement needs 270 electoral votes to go into effect. A challenge is getting to 196 might be easier than getting between 196 and 270, given you'd need a bunch of non-blue states. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 197 new COVID cases and four new deaths. 
The state has now had a total of 155,787 COVID cases since the pandemic began. There have been a total of 2,212 deaths. The OHA also reports that it will receive 34,000 doses of the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And that's just in time because Oregonians 65 and older are now eligible for the COVID vaccine. They are the final group of elderly Oregonians who qualify for this phase of COVID vaccines. For a while, signing up for a vaccine appointment was basically a battle royale for Oregonians. But the OHA has recently changed things to make the whole process more efficient and less stressful. Seniors can now enter their names into a vaccine registry. After that, they'll be informed when they can make an appointment. The next wave of Oregonians eligible for the vaccine includes people 45 and older with medical conditions, grocery and agricultural workers, and people who are homeless. They will be able to get vaccines starting March 29th. Portland City Council is going to remove regulatory roadblocks for downtown businesses looking to increase security. Pioneer Place Mall downtown has seen better days. Upscale stores like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and the Apple Store have been targets for graffiti and window smashing for months. Plus, did you see the Gucci store's interior design? Lots of mixing patterns. Lots of mixing patterns. The mall's property owners have applied for city approval to install new roll-down security gates. No word on whether they will continue to mix patterns. The permitting process usually takes about 100 days, but after the Portland Business Alliance complained, the city is looking to fast-track the process. Mayor Ted Wheeler, Commissioner Dan Ryan are going to introduce ordinances to speed up the permitting process next Wednesday. They say their actions would help all downtown businesses, not just ritzy department stores and not just messing with mixed patterns. It's yet another step in the city's slow but steady reopening plan. Oregon lawmakers are fighting for federal LGBTQ protections. The Equality Act protects LGBTQ individuals from discrimination in housing, credit, and other matters. This landmark piece of legislation passed in the House last Thursday. All four Democratic Oregonians in the House of Representatives spoke in favor of the bill. Representative Suzanne Bonamici helped pass broad civil rights protections for LGBTQ Oregonians back in 2007. But there are still 27 states in America that have no protections at the state level for the LGBTQ community. Federal legislation would help protect members of the LGBTQ community nationwide. The Equality Act will face more opposition in the Senate. A similar act passed in the House in 2019, but died in the then-Republican-controlled Senate. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley has been a longtime sponsor of the Equality Act. He's optimistic about the act's future now that the Senate has a Democratic majority. Senator Merkley said, quote, It is way past time to end the dark history of discrimination and begin a new era of equality and justice for our fellow LGBTQ Americans. Oregon State University has federal approval to open a wave energy facility on the coast. Wave energy harnesses the motion of the ocean to generate electricity. It's clean, it's renewable, but projects have been slow to develop due to high costs. Oregon has a high potential for wave energy generation. Heck, a bunch of the state is on the coast, unlike states that aren't on the coast. According to the Oregon Department of Energy, nearshore wave energy projects alone have the potential to power 28 million homes annually. On Monday, federal energy regulators approved such a project in Newport. That project's going to span over eight miles of ocean. 
Right now, OSU is just looking to test the technology. Energy production from these tests will be small compared to a fully functional wave energy project. If the project is effective, they want to make the case for more projects statewide, presumably on the coastal side of the state. And finally, some good news. An Oregon wolf made a historic journey all the way to California. The endangered gray wolf made the longest tracked journey of any wolf over the last century. Conservationists hope that this wolf will help establish a new community of gray wolves in the Sierra Nevadas. Fewer than 12 gray wolves currently live in California. The species was nearly wiped out in the 20th century due to a government-backed program to protect livestock by eradicating wolves. The Trump administration has also been antagonistic towards gray wolves. Officials removed gray wolves from the endangered species list in January. Wolves threaten some ranchers, but they're also essential to a health ecosystem. This one wolf, who has traveled from central Oregon all the way to Mono County in California, is a beacon of hope for conservationists. And, that and that's today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six Local, Local Rundown. Rundown. X-ray. Next up, here's what's up with the Portland City Council. This is your weekly City Council update. The first work session brought both Portland City Council and Multnomah County Commissioners together to discuss the matter of gun violence in the city. Since the pandemic began, Portland has seen more than twice as many shootings as 2019 and the years previous. 892 shootings occurred in once in the city, resulting in 41 deaths. 103 shootings occurred last month alone. Half of the people who died were black. Commissioners met to discuss declaring a state of emergency, specifically a public health emergency, over the increase in gun violence. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty led this work session and clarified that she does not believe this should be left only to law enforcement to solve and framing it as a public health issue could help engage the community in a similar way to the coronavirus pandemic. Commissioner Hardesty ran a poll asking commissioners what they believe makes communities safe. Several options were presented and participants were allowed to select as many as they'd like. However, 30% said police presence makes a community safe, and 75% said coffee shops, thriving retail spaces, and businesses make communities safe. Commissioners quickly pointed out the correlation between pandemic-related business closures and the decrease in community safety. Next quarter, this discussion will be continued amongst our elected leaders. The other work session revolved around the matter of social equity and contracting. The City of Portland adopted a subcontractor equity program requiring 20% utilization of certified disadvantaged minority, women, emerging, or service-disabled veteran-owned businesses. The data presented showed that 31% of contracts go towards people of color and women-owned companies. However, there's been a drop since 2018. The Bureau of Revenue and Financial Services advised opening up the program to primary contracting companies. To kick off Wednesday's ordinance meeting, a community member came to council to express their concern over the removal of the Hazelnut Grove Tiny Home Village. Hazelnut Grove is home to a group of Portlanders who have experienced housing instability. It is a self-governed community with a code of conduct, garden, library, and food pantry. The residents have expressed they'd like to stay, however, due to safety concerns. The city has decided to sweep it and offered many of its residents a place in St. John's Tiny Home Village. Commissioner Dan Ryan responded to the community member by saying, quote, There are no evictions planned for Hazelnut Grove at this time. An update on this issue is expected later this week. 
Council also accepted a $200,000 grant from People for Bikes to implement a bike program with the Multnomah County Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health Program. Additionally, Council approved an application of $32,000 grant to the Oregon Department of Transportation to create a transportation safety education program. This will increase access to programs and encourage Portlanders to walk, bike, or take public transit. That's it for this week's City Council update. Next week, commissioners will discuss expanding opportunities for affordable housing. More information, including virtual meetings and agendas, can be found at portlandoregon.gov forward slash auditor. X-ray. And we have an interview with Emily Green, managing editor of Street Roots. She's here to discuss the paper's ongoing series on housing issues in Josephine County and Grants Pass. Here are Emily Green and X-Ray's Julia Oppenheimer. Emily, good morning. Good morning. What is, what's going on in Grants Pass? We've been hearing a lot about Josephine County lately and homelessness. Yeah, um, we, our reporter Hannah Mersbach has been doing a great, really immersive series on the situation down there. Um, and it's, it's really covered the gamut on issues around housing and homelessness. And the reason we decided to highlight Josephine County is um, it's indicative of many rural counties across Oregon. I mean, none of these issues are unique to this county, but it's, it's dire there. Um, just in the past uh, four years, homelessness has doubled to more than 1,400 people. And at last count, 91% of them were unsheltered, which is um, way higher than the state average of about 64%. Yeah, that is that is intense. I know um, we had Hannah on maybe two weeks ago and she was talking about um, how you can't have uh, an RV on private land, even if the landowner allows it for some (laughs) Josephine County regulations. Um, Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, please continue. Well, I was going to say, you know, Josephine County has really taken this uh, punitive approach to homelessness. Um, It has a history of really trying to drive people out rather than providing services. Mm. At large, the community has just been completely indifferent to this explosion in homelessness when really it's being driven by a severe lack of affordable housing, um, as it is in many rural Oregon counties. And at this point, you know, they had just crossed a huge um, hurdle. The very first low barrier uh, shelter in the entire county was going to open. It was only going to open for 90 days. It was a temporary permit. The city council had to overcome all kinds of um, ordinances to be able to even do this. Um, And now it's been canceled. And this was actually the uh, our cover story on February 10th was um, how the shelter was going to open. And since then, the uh, couple who owned the building have decided not to lease it because there's been so much pushback from neighbors. (laughs) Oh, wow. So this was like slated to go forward less than two weeks ago. Yes, that's right. I'm speaking to Emily Green from Street Roots. My name is Julia Oppenheimer. Uh, The situation kind of reminds me of Portland a few years ago with the homeless shelter in Foster Powell. Um, in both of those situations, it kind of seems like cities are more worried about the visibility of homeless people rather than housing people. Does that seem like a fair fair assessment? 
Um, in some ways, yes, but at least in Portland, you know, we do have resources. We do have shelters. I, I, they literally have um, nothing in Josephine County. They don't have showers for people experiencing homelessness. Um, and a group of folks actually brought a lawsuit against the city uh, a couple years ago, charging that um, their treatment of ticketing and um, arresting people for uh, camping and sleeping outside was unconstitutional, and a federal judge agreed with them. Mm. So, um, part one story in this week's issue of Street Roots, uh, we went back and asked people on the ground in Grants Pass if, you know, since this federal judge made that ruling, you know, has life gotten better? And a couple of things have. Um, people are allowed to erect tents now. They weren't before at any time. Um, but they can only keep them up at night between 5 p.m. and 7.30 a.m. Mm. Um, then they have to pack it up and move along, which is, goes against the CDC guidelines right now for living um, outside during a pandemic. They're recommending that cities allow people to stay in place, and that's impossible, and they have to pack everything up every day. And literally, move, they're told to move along. Um, and they report, you know, that police are still harassing them. They're kicking their tents in the morning, confiscating their belongings. Um, so even with this ruling, you know, life their, life is still very uncomfortable for people um, who really have nowhere else to go. Yeah. So um, it sounds like maybe that ruling is maybe a step in the right direction. Are there other are there other positive factors you see happening with homelessness in Josephine County or access to resources? I think, you know, there's been some changes with the local government there. There's a new mayor, Sarah Bristol, and she's supportive of seeing a shelter put in place. And that's been, um, that's very different from <laughs> um, past approaches from the local government. Um, the Medford-based nonprofit Rogue Retreat is, is still looking for a place to put a low-barrier shelter. They're going to continue that effort. Um, so if people, you know, want to help out, I would recommend reaching out to, you know, Rogue Retreat to see, you know, what what they can do to help. Um, and that nonprofit is going to be opening a tiny home village oh, cool. in the city of Grants Pass. So it sounds like they had everything in place and then the, the landlords pulled out. Does that mean that if they can just find another landlord, this this project will go through? Yeah, they've got to find another place, um, but it, it can be difficult because the, in the past, the city has been so anti-shelter um, that they put in place a lot of zoning laws that make it really difficult to find a location. It can't be in a business district. It can't be in a residential district. It basically has to be in some kind of industrial area or outside of city limits to even exist. And Grants Pass isn't a huge place, right? right? So there's not a, a ton of options. Right. And it sounds like um, from from the article in Street Roots this week that one of the main people opposing the shelter is a real estate agent who's been actively working against affordable housing in the past. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the systemic issues that are at play here? Yeah, and this is a topic of our editorial this week. Um, we did notice that the charge to repeal the permit for the shelter was led by a real estate agent whose office was just a few blocks away from the proposed shelter site. Um, and, and there is a connection there. Um, the Oregon Association of Real Realtors, uh, of which she is a member, has really worked to obstruct efforts uh, that would have created new ongoing funds for local communities like Grants Pass 
to create the affordable housing that is so badly needed in Josephine County. Um, and, and there's a, a history of this. I mean, in 2011, for example, uh, they opposed successfully um, uh, transfer tax on property sales that could have been used to fund affordable mm-hmm. housing. And they've also fought um, any effort to scale back the mortgage interest deduction rate for wealthiest home buyers, including for second homes, um, even though that would have preserved it would have preserved the deduction for the vast majority of home buyers. Um, And that that's something that really would have helped. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've also opposed some laws that did get through, like the end of no cause evictions and limits to annual rent increases. Um, but, you know, the, here you have this organization and, um, that's representing industry, and it's really, you know, making the plight of people who are just trying to pay rent so much more dire. And meanwhile, you know, you've got members who are opposed to any kind of service to help those folks. And it's right. just so indicative of many of these rural communities where punitive policies are used to just, you know, tamper long-term solutions. And it, it, our editorial board um, feels that, you know, a, because a temporary homeless shelter for 40 families can't open in the middle of winter, I mean, is just appalling. Absolutely. Do you have any idea um, if the people, the, the majority of homeless people in Grants Pass are, are like local Grants Pass residents or, pa- or people passing through? Um, you know, it's such a misnomer um, in so many of these communities that all the homeless folks are coming down from Portland or up right. from California. And every time we've got a reporter on the ground who's actually talking to people again and again, you know, the vast majority are people who have grown up in the area, mm-hmm. who were housed in the area, who worked in the area, and who, um, you know, through whatever turn of events, lost that housing and was never able to regain it back. It's so, it's just so devastating. You always want to hope that like small towns have really big communities, you know, and that's like the, the reason people go to move to small towns and it just sort of sounds like this is falling apart here for big portions of the community. You know, I should note though, there are private residents uh, within Grants Pass who have really been trying to make a difference who have been um, Foundry Village, the tiny home village, that's coming about because uh, private residents actually donated the land to have it built on. Um, There's a park in Grants Pass where many people camp out, and it was private citizens that put a porta potty there Hmm. um, because the city wouldn't. The city removed it after two hours. But, um, you know, there are people there who do care and who are trying to help. Wow, after two hours. That's intense. Okay, so can you tell me the name of the organization in Medford again? Um, yes, yeah, it's Rogue with? Retreat. Rogue Retreats, and uh, that's something people can look up and donate to and uh, get involved. Yes, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you, Emily, and I'm glad we're ending on a somewhat positive note of Citizens Helping Citizens. Uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. All right, thank you so much. Have a good day. That was Emily Green, the managing editor of Street Roots. Thanks to Emily for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.